0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, April 9th. I'm Marco Werman. Syria's violence spills into Lebanon and Turkey, raising fears of contagion.
1: The Syrian regime has warned that If it goes down, it will take the whole region with it.
0: Also, a presidential candidate in Egypt may be disqualified because his mother apparently held a U.S. passport. His supporters don't buy it.
2: We just want to see the proof. Where is the proof? We just want to see the documents. The American passport, for example. Everything, everything.
0: Plus, how marijuana could help one Spanish town pay its debts.
3: MRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of NOVA with Deadliest Tornadoes. Scientists are striving to understand the forces at work behind last year's most extreme tornado outbreak in decades. Wednesday, April 11th at 9, 8 Central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman, this is The World. This week, a United Nations-backed ceasefire is supposed to go into effect in Syria, but events on the ground don't really seem to be leading up to that. Today, there were more reports of fighting between government forces and rebels. The violence crossed two international borders, in fact. In one incident, Syrian army soldiers reportedly fired into a refugee camp inside Turkey, wounding several people. In another, a TV cameraman was shot and killed along Lebanon's border with Syria. Borzu Daragahi of the Financial Times is following events from Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, Borzu, what has been the response from Lebanon? Any different from Turkey?
1: I think Lebanon is just investigating. The Lebanese government is avowedly pro-Syrian. It is uh, uh, led by Hezbollah and its allies. I don't think that they're going to uh, start making enemies with the uh, Syrian regime right now by accusing them of anything. Uh, So for now, the response has been almost nothing. Uh, Turkey is outraged over this. They have uh, summoned the uh, Syrian charge d'affaires. It should be said that uh, the Syrian regime has warned that if it goes down, it will take the whole region with it. And although these could have been isolated incidents, it could also very well be that Syria is trying to send a message. Uh, this is how the Syrian regime uh, works. They, they think of themselves as having these cards. And they play these cards. And so now they're playing the uh, uh, regional chaos card to show, to demonstrate, uh, however counterintuitive it may be to us, that uh, they can create a lot of havoc throughout the region. And they're willing to uh, stir up havoc and uh, have the crisis in Syria expand its borders so that it will affect other countries as well Uh, to us This may seem, you know, uh, ridiculous and it may seem like a recipe for inviting foreign intervention. But to the Syrian regime, they don't think that way. This is a way of scaring off foreign interference.
0: I mean, the fire on the borders of of Lebanon and Turkey just seemed disastrous for the U.N.-negotiated ceasefire, uh, which is due to be implemented this week. Instead, the conflict is bleeding into neighboring countries. What are the hopes of the peace plan getting through this week, not in tatters?
1: People who've seriously been following the Syria crisis had no hope that this uh, peace plan would work. It could also be that Kofi Annan himself knew that it wouldn't work. Kofi Annan is a former UN secretary general now serving as an Arab League and UN envoy to Syria in an attempt to get a, a, a sort of a truce, a, a ceasefire implemented. He could have known from the beginning uh, that this wouldn't have worked. He is going through a kind of complex diplomatic choreography in order to get the international community on the same page. The problem right now is that no serious diplomatic action can be taken against Syria because Russia and China aren't signing off. By getting Russia and China to sign off on the peace plan and showing that Syria is violating it, uh, Kofi Annan and the rest of the diplomatic community could be laying the groundwork for more serious diplomatic action at the UN Security Council
0: and in that complex international choreography does Kofi Annan have a next step
1: Absolutely he reports back to his uh, the people who assigned him this task the Arab League and the UN as to how or whether the various parties fighting complied with the uh, requests that you know the sort of 6 point plan that he presented that everyone ostensibly signed off on except for Syria who uh, later presented all these caveats that all but negated its adherence to the plan.
0: Uh, Borzu, you followed the Syria story day in, day out now for many months. Uh, How much of what you're hearing out of Syria is actually verifiable since the country is still blocking most journalists from coming into uh, the country?
1: This is a a tough process, trying to get information out of the country. What we do is uh, we rely on um, trusted sources, mostly activists, admittedly. And, uh, you know, we uh, develop ties with them, develop relations with them. We convince them that exaggerating or misreporting something is not in their interest because if they're caught, they will ruin their credibility. Um, I personally did the same kind of reporting during the 2009 uprising in Iran. So I have a little bit of experience uh, on this. Uh, and, you know, we, we do the best that we can. It's not easy, but there's no other way.
0: Borzu Daragahi with the Financial Times, speaking with us from Beirut. Thanks a lot, Borzu. Always a pleasure. Syria and Egypt once had very similar political systems, both ruled by autocrats who validated their rule occasionally through less than free elections. Egypt is now on a different path. Next month, the country is due to hold its first post-revolution open presidential election. There are several candidates. Some threw their hats in the ring just before yesterday's registration deadline. But one popular presidential hopeful might be forced to drop out. He may be disqualified because his late mother had obtained U.S. citizenship. Reporter Ursula Lindsay in Cairo has a story.
4: Sheikh Hazem Salah Abu Ismail is a popular figure in Egypt. In a recent poll, the Islamist preacher ranked in second place at nearly 30% of the vote. Posters of the smiling, bearded sheikh bearing his slogan, to live in dignity, have blanketed the country. Over the weekend, his supporters converged on Tahrir Square. Abu Ismail is considered an ultra conservative. He supports the adoption of Islamic law and gender segregation, though he says these changes should take place gradually. His style is avuncular and populist. And he supported the Egyptian revolution from the outset and has been scathingly critical of the ruling generals. With Abu Ismail, we will see justice and peace and security, says one supporter, Mariam, a nurse wearing the full face
2: veil.
4: He's the only one who will make Egypt truly independent, beholden to no one, says Mohsen, a young doctor. Especially not to the U.S., Many here blame the U.S. for its support of Israel and of former Egyptian president Hosni Mubarak. Abu Ismail has been consistently critical of what he calls American interference in Egypt. At a recent event, Abu Ismail spoke critically about the way he says America provides aid to Egypt.
5: The Americans give us what they want, according to
6: their values. They say, we want to change these people's values, To make them love sexual degenerates, homosexual marriage. American aid is according to their plans, not our needs. We don't get to say what we want. We don't make the decision. It's imposed on us.
4: So it was embarrassing, to say the least, when Egypt's electoral committee said over the weekend it has proof that Abu Ismail's late mother had obtained US citizenship. His sister is married to an American, and his mother used to pay her extended visits in California. A new Egyptian law disqualifies any presidential candidate whose parents or grandparents held foreign citizenship. Abu Ismail denies his mother held a U.S. passport. He says the allegations are a plot hatched by internal and external forces. His supporters seem to agree. We just
2: want to see the proof. Where is the proof? We just want to see the document. The American passport, for example. We've been talking about that since more than a week, okay? Where is the proof?
4: This man, named Mahmoud, says the story about Abu Ismail's mother having U.S. citizenship is, you guessed it, an American conspiracy cooked up with the Egyptian authorities.
2: You know that he's very powerful. Everybody likes him. And I don't, I don't think he will going to be in the favor of the Americans or Israel or the Military Council.
4: It's too soon to tell how Abu Ismail's almost certain disqualification might affect the presidential race. The Muslim Brotherhood's main financier, Khairat al-Shantar, threw in his hat last week. And now Mubarak's intelligence chief and right-hand man, Omar Suleiman, is running as well. Still, it's hard to imagine Abu Ismail's supporters abandoning him that easily. Over the weekend, they flocked to President Obama's Facebook page, entreating him to end the conspiracy against their candidate. For The World, I'm Ursula Lindsay, Cairo.
0: Israel is a nation with strong democratic traditions, and right now it's in the thick of a freedom of speech debate. Israel has barred German author Gunter Grass from entering the country. The move is in response to a poem by Grass that accuses Israel of being a threat to world peace and compares Israel's nuclear potential to Iran's. The poem was published in a German newspaper last week. It ignited controversy in both Germany and Israel. The Israeli interior minister said it fanned the flames of hate against Israel and the Israeli people. Tom Segev is one of Israel's most prominent writers. He's critical of the decision to ban Gras and says it's more about politics than literature.
7: Grass is not about to visit Israel, so this is a political gesture. I think it is a very... Embarrassing gesture because uh, we don't really want to belong to countries like Iran and Syria who give uh, entry permits to people according to their political views. I wrote an article criticizing the poem because mainly because I think that Günter Grass is not an authority on nuclear strategy. He started his poem by explaining why he needs to break the silence. While in reality, there is no silence concerning this uh, subject for months now. Nothing else is being debated in Israel.
0: And just to remind our listeners, in the poem uh, published in this uh, paper last week, uh, Gunter Gross condemned uh, German arms sales to Israel and said the Jewish state must not be allowed to launch military strikes against Iran. Now, you've defended Gunter Gross in the past. Uh, Are you defending him now?
7: I think that uh, the poem is uh, pathetic, but uh, I also don't uh, think that it's justified to compare Israel with Iran, because it is not Israel threatening the existence of Iran, but Iran threatening the existence of Israel. Also, uh, according to Gunter Grass, the danger is that uh, Israel will annihilate the Iranian people, and that, of course, is... Complete nonsense because we are not talking about a nuclear attack on Tehran. We are talking about measures, at most measures, that uh, might prevent the Iranians from manufacturing an atomic bomb. So uh, I really think that it is a pathetic poem, but it is in no way anti-Semitic. What I resented was that the Israeli embassy in Berlin immediately described this poem, and in fact, Gunter Grass himself, as an anti-Semite. And then uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said the same, then our foreign minister said the same, and they are trying to outdo each other.
0: You defend Gunter Grass's right to write what he wants. Uh, You are in a minority, though, in Israel, it sounds like, on this particular case. Where is the disconnect with most Israelis who don't want him to enter the country?
7: I don't know that most Israelis have an opinion about that. It is not uh, such a big issue in Israel as it is in Germany. Most Israelis read Günter Grass. So it's really part of uh, Israeli politics now. But I can't tell you that most Israelis regard Günter Grass as an anti-Semite because I still believe that most Israelis are much more intelligent than the Israeli government is.
0: Tom Segev, a journalist and historian, he's the author of The Seventh Million, The Israelis, and the Holocaust. Thank you for speaking with us.
7: Thank you very much.
0: As we mentioned, Gunter Grass's poem has been controversial in Germany, too. The world's web producer, Michael Rass, has been monitoring German reaction to the poem. You can read Michael's blog post about it at
3: theworld.org. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. China has seen explosive growth and profound social changes in recent years, and Jeffrey Bader has had a front row seat to watch it all unfold. Bader was one of President Obama's China policy architects until he left the White House a year ago. His new book is called Obama and China's Rise, an insider's account of America's Asia strategy. In it, Jeffrey Bader describes a China slowly repositioning itself on the global stage. That repositioning is evident, he says, in today's news that China is officially urging its ally, Syria, to abide by a
8: U.N.-sponsored peace plan. They've been clearly unnerved by the Arab Spring. Uh, they're much more comfortable with stable places than with places in turmoil. Uh, Syria, they, along with the Russians, vetoed a resolution They had a 13 to 2 vote in the Security Council a month or two ago. I think that put them on the wrong side of some of their key friends in the region. The Arab League strongly supported the resolution and uh, more importantly, perhaps, so does Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a key strategic partner uh, for China. I think China has reflected uh, about the strategic harm that they may have been doing to themselves as a result of these alignments that I mentioned. And they are trying to reposition themselves. So that's quite interesting what they've done uh, in the last 24 hours. They don't want to irritate the Saudis in the Arab League. I think that's what it's about.
0: What can Washington actually do to get China's real sincere help in dealing with Syria?
8: Well, I think the main thing is to get them supportive of a U.N. Security Council process and to use whatever leverage they have in Damascus to try to move towards a transition. The Chinese natural instinct is to respect the sovereignty of states. They, they were, the, in their view, the victims of imperialism and colonialism in the 19th and first half of the 20th century. So they see uh, Western interventions in places like Syria through the prism of their own uh, victimhood, uh, their own history. So what they need to do in this case is to overcome that and to understand that this is uh, a part of the world where change is coming, whether they like it or not, and the question is whether they want to be on the side of change with the benefits that come from that, uh, or want to be kind of the last man standing, resisting and have to pay the price with uh, new governments that come into power. And I think they're showing some adaptation now.
0: We learned last week from analyst Wang Ji-C, a Chinese foreign policy insider, that the senior leadership of the Chinese government distrusts Washington to a dangerous degree. And according to Wang Jici, the period of China. Keeping a low profile is over. Uh, is this paranoia building? Uh, are we indeed entering a new, more dangerous
8: uh, relationship with China? Well, I know Wang Ji Su very well. The piece that he wrote laid out what I view as the harder edged positions within the Chinese leadership in terms of distrust of the United States. i don 't really think that it's becoming more profound it's it's real, but it's not the total story.
0: It's true, though, that China's been running a healthy trade surplus uh, over the U.S. uh, for years, and many believe their military is much more robust than most estimates. So uh, on some levels, it's got to be undeniable to you that China is eclipsing the U.S., and that's got to create some mistrust.
8: I wouldn't use the word eclipse. I agree with the premise that China's rising, that China's becoming more of a a factor in global affairs, that the gap between the U.S. and China whether it's in the economic realm or the military realm, uh, is narrowing. But one has to start with how big the gap is to begin with. Mm. Per capita GDP in the U.S. is something like about 10 times per capita GDP in China. So if that gap is closing, well, that's a long time to close. They're trying to gain a stronger position in the Western Pacific within, let's say, 1,000 miles of their coast, which they see as defensive, but from our point of view, makes it harder for us to defend our allies and to conduct operations. So yes, there, there are definitely some trends that we have to be aware of. But the notion that we are about to be uh, eclipsed, we're about to become uh, the number two power, I think that that is frankly a fantasy.
0: There are new overtures in Burma right now toward democracy and uh, w- with major efforts from the Obama administration to push the government of Burma to open up. I'm wondering if you think North Korea will, will see Burma as a model and also want to come in from the cold.
8: I think that's a fascinating question. The short answer is no, but there still are interesting analogies between the two, both very repressive countries for the last several decades, both countries that have uh, relied heavily on their relationships with China. And in Burma's case, they seem to have made the decision that they're prepared to take some risks internally in order to have more varied international partners among the U.S., uh, the Europeans uh, than they've had in the past. The North Koreans similarly have a relationship of heavy dependence on, on China, which they're not comfortable with. But I think the difference is the North Korean regime, uh, as difficult, as bad, as repressive as the Burmese regime is, it's been somewhat exposed to the outside world, mostly through its membership in ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Mm -hmm. Nations. It hasn't been as locked down as North Korea. North Korea really has a tiny group of Communist Party cadres who have run that place with an iron fist for 60 years. For them to make a decision to open up even slightly, just seems contrary to their DNA. But I agree with the premise of your question, that sitting there, they ought to take a look at what's going on in Burma and see if there is some relevance to their own situation.
0: Jeffrey Bader, I got to say, something uh, we uh, journalists find uh, quite frustrating is interviewing diplomats, and you are a diplomat. I mean, diplomats are trained not to give deep details and to hide their cards, There's got to be some great story that you can share with us.
8: I've had a a wonderful time in the White House the last few years. The experience with President Obama has been uh, simply extraordinary. Uh, I think he's brought tremendous uh, focus to Asia. He spent his formative years in Indonesia. And I recall when he met with um, President Yudhoyono of Indonesia. We had breakfast uh, in Toronto back in 2010. And uh, the Indonesian press came in and President Obama greeted them in Bahasa, the language of Indonesia. Usually when an American speaks an Asian language, there's usually some giggling and laughter as if, isn't it funny how the uh, American is trying to sound like an Asian? Mm -hmm. No laughter and no giggling at all. And President Obama leaned over and said to President Yudhoyono, you know, I speak Bahasa with a perfect accent, which (laughs) struck me as uncharacteristically immodest for President Obama. And then he added seconds later Of course, I have the vocabulary of a (laughs) six-year-old. So uh, uh, it was a a great ride.
0: Jeffrey Bader served as a special assistant to President Obama. His new book is called Obama and China's Rise, an Insider's Account of America's Asia Strategy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. We have a video extra from my interview with Jeffrey Bader where he tells us about an embarrassing episode that involved a game of golf with the prime minister of Malaysia. Watch the video at theworld.org. We're tracking North Atlantic right whales for our geoquiz today. These endangered giants migrate along the North American coast from Nova Scotia to Florida. Right about this time of the year, they arrive at their summer feeding grounds. That's the place we want you to name. It's a shallow patch of nutrient-rich ocean in between Cape Ann and Cape Cod. This 850-square-mile National Marine Sanctuary has specially designed acoustic buoys for listening to the calls of right whales.
9: A right whale up-call kind of goes, ooooh.
0: We'll hear later in the show how recording those whoops may help prevent passing ships from colliding with the whales. For now, try to name the marine sanctuary where North American right whales are headed for a good meal this time of year. News headlines are next on PRI. I'm Marco Worman. Ahead, Scotland's only gold mine is set to begin operations inside a national park. Supporters dismiss environmental concerns.
3: How many beautiful hills do you want? How many beautiful walks do you want? This is actually going to put this back. After 10 years, you won't know there was a gold mine there. PRIs the world is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com/global Heroes. I'm Marco
0: Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The price of gold has come down a bit from last year's all-time highs, but one ounce of gold today still sets you back more than $1,600. Ten years ago, that same ounce was worth only about $300. Bucks. With inflation like that, who wouldn't want to start up a gold mine? One company is getting ready to do that in Scotland. If all goes according to plan, Scotland's only gold mine will begin operation sometime this year. The project has its critics, largely because the mine sits inside Loch Lomond National Park. The world's Laura Lynch went to check it out.
10: At the end of a long dirt road set among the craggy hills and mists of the Scottish Highlands, Chris Sankster unlocks an iron gate that is the gateway to gold.
11: No particular safety instructions other than it's wet, it's muddy and the floor's a bit uneven.
10: Only the headlamps on our helmets light up the dark tunnel as we begin the walk down, about half a mile to where the first vein of gold appears.
11: Um, the resource we have at the moment is about half a million tonnes of, of rock, which contains just under five tonnes of gold and around 25 tonnes of silver. Um, and that's what the mine is, is built around.
10: That's edging up toward $300 million worth of gold, depending on market prices. Sangster's company, Scott's Gold, won approval from the park authorities by making one big promise. They'll restore the site when they're finished.
11: Mines are transient beasts. We'll be here for 10 years, Uh, then we'll disappear, and at the end of 15 years, you won't particularly see that we've been here.
10: As we emerge from the darkness back out to the breathtaking beauty of the hills and valleys, Sangster shows a keen awareness of his surroundings.
11: Can you see the green fields there? That's basically where you can see it from. The, the approval West for
10: Island the mine Coast came Coast only Coast after Coast the Coast first Coast proposal Coast was Island. rejected. The second time around, the restoration plan was deemed adequate. What's unusual about the mine isn't just its location inside park boundaries. From the start, the company had the overwhelming support of the locals who love the majesty of the park, but aren't so fond of the tough economic times in their village. At the Green Welly rest stop in Tyndrum, customers can stop to buy gas, a snack, outdoor hiking gear, and just recently, a new product. This is Tyndrum Gold,
4: and it's a 15-year-old, Speyside, single malt whiskey. It's a very good whiskey. We had a whiskey tasting here um, one night, And this bottle that we tasted was finished on that night because it was so good. Shauna Oakston has
10: sold most of the 600 bottles of this special edition Tyndrum gold, named for the mine in case you missed it, to the locals who are pretty happy to toast the new endeavour. Oakston has seen the young people leave Tyndrum for work. She thinks it's well past time to dig the gold out of the rock. Because it's there,
4: why not use it, you know, because... You need gold, people need jewellery, and if a gold mine's there, I think it's a good benefit for everybody round about. So
10: residents hope it will mean jobs and economic development. There's already talk of a tourist centre. Julie Moore also believes in the project. How many, how many beautiful hills
3: do you want? How many beautiful walks do you want? This is, they're actually going to put this back. When they're finished with this, after ten years you won't know there was a gold mine there. The
10: mine was first staked out in 1985, but abandoned when the price of gold dropped earlier this century. Since then, though, the price has soared doubling since 2008. That's made for a new gold rush both here in the natural splendor of Scotland and in the glass and concrete heart of London. This is recycling on a very expensive scale at the London office of Goldsmiths. The company has been around since 1327, certifying the value and purity of gold. A worker dumps a tangle of gold chains, bracelets, earrings, and even false teeth into a smelter. Those are the ingredients. Bake for about 20 minutes at 1,000 degrees. Pour into a mold, and you get this.
5: That is a very heavy gold bar. This is only nine carat. That's probably worth, oh, I'd say, eighty thousand pounds. That's worth eighty thousand pounds.
10: Yeah. <laughs> as david mary cradles the bar it doesn't look like those shiny smooth bricks of gold stored away in vaults it's unfinished pockmarked and dull but it's certainly valuable mary says they had to buy a new smelter about three years ago when the price of gold went crazy now they melt down more than three million dollars worth a week
5: when it first started it became such a bit of a madness that we were getting things like Crimea War medals and First World War medals and things like that, which you would expect to be family pieces. But uh, it's that price of gold. If you're hard up, you need to get your money from somewhere. And that's exactly the route people took.
10: Back in Scotland, another metal gate opens on another hillside. Dorothy Breckenridge, owner of a company that organizes hikes in and around the park, pauses to gaze out at the land that's become her livelihood.
12: I've had people coming from all over the world uh, and they are absolutely gobsmacked at, at <laughs> the variety and actually just the, the wildness of, of the landscape.
10: Breckenridge is dismayed by the plan to go ahead with the mine. She sees it as part of a trend driven in part by the craze for gold. It's a gradual
12: encroaching of of this fantastic natural asset that that we have in the scenery and landscape of Scotland and that's not being accepted as a viable long-term necessity for Scotland.
10: This windswept land is generating a debate about where its value really lies. For those promoting Scotland's only gold mine, it's about what lies beneath. For Breckenridge and others, it's more of an untouchable place, no matter how tempting the glitter of gold. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch near Loch Lomond. Scotland.
0: Head inside the mine in Loch Lomond Park and see how company officials have tried to reduce the impact of its operations. Laura sent us a slideshow, which you can see at theworld.org. The enduring appeal of gold is reflected in the markets every day. It's what many investors turn to in times of economic uncertainty. That's led some, like Republican presidential candidate Ron Paul, to suggest a return to the gold standard for determining the value of money. It's issues like that that prompted Matthew Bishop to put pen to paper. Bishop is New York bureau chief of The Economist and co-author of In Gold We Trust, The Future of Money in an Age of Uncertainty. Uh, There is something magical about gold that conveys a sense of wealth and solidity. Uh, Where does that come from? And why don't like silver or diamonds or platinum have the same kind of magic?
5: Well, I think it was one of the things that we look at in In Gold We Trust, where we look at the history of money and go back to the very dawns of Civilization and you know people like Croesus uh, you know the phrase as rich as Croesus, and I guess you mm. get the early myth- myths like King Midas and how the wanted to turn everything into gold and then discovered it wasn 't such a bright idea uh, all the way through to you know really in the last three hundred years where gold became much more at the center of the economic system, and that was actually um, almost a historical accident where Sir Isaac Newton, who we all remember <laughs> best for. Uh, the apple falling on his head and then he discovered the laws of gravity. He was actually in charge of the British currency at the time um, and had to decide what the exchange rate would be between gold and silver because silver was the other common form of money. And the way he actually calculated it meant that uh, it was a slightly better bet to use gold as a currency than silver. And um, So people took silver out of the money supply and just just, just relied on the use of gold. And then America copied Britain and went down a system of the gold standard as well. And so Even though silver probably had a longer track record as being regular money, gold became fixed in people's minds as the purest form of money. So it's not just the apple that goes up and must come down.
0: I guess the price of gold must go up and also come down
5: too. I just think we're just very lucky that he didn't get hit on the head by a gold bar (laughs) because he probably wouldn't have come up with such a brilliant theory. But is that rise in the price per ounce of gold sustainable? I mean all previous gold booms have ended in a bubble, right? Well, I think what we try and get at in, in Gold We Trust is is why the gold price has gone up and what, what is it that brought gold back into fashion. And to do that, we looked at the whole history of gold uh, and particularly its role as money because I think one of the things that's going on at the moment is that investors, the smartest investors, the people who saw the big crash coming a couple of years ago, um, those investors, people like George Soros, people like uh, Ray Dalio and John Paulson, who made billions personally by correctly predicting the economic problems that we're in at the moment. You know they've been buying gold and they're doing it because they've lost faith in traditional money. They've lost faith in the dollar, they've lost faith in the euro, uh, and they think that those currencies are very weak and they're going to probably get weaker. And gold with its long history as a money is a better bet than um, than than paper currencies. Is the US dollar still as good as gold? Well, no, I think this is the worry. I mean, I think what we've seen is that um, we're in this unprecedented period, as we say, in in Gold We Trust, that we're in this period where we're really experimenting uh, with uh, macroeconomic policy, with printing money on a level that's never been printed before. So the Federal Reserve's response to the financial crash uh, of 2008 has been to to pump more and more money, to print lots and lots of money. And now the European Central Bank is also doing that. And history has said that every time that's happened in the past – That has resulted in inflation, in the real value of the paper currency falling substantially. Now, this may be uh, the thing that the moment when history doesn't repeat itself. But I think a lot of people are buying gold because they think, well, chances are, uh, you know, what's always happened in the past is going to happen again and that we're going to see a much weaker dollar and we're going to see all currencies, all paper currencies get weaker relative to gold. Speaking with us from New York, Matthew Bishop
0: of The Economist magazine, co-author of In Gold We Trust. Matthew, thanks a lot. Thank you. Spain could use a little gold. Unemployment is rising, so are the interest rates the country pays on its debt. And another round of austerity measures has unions warning of real social unrest. Spain's debt problem isn't just on the national level. There are thousands of small towns that have borrowed too much. One example is the village of Rasquera near the Mediterranean coast. Rasquera is on the verge of bankruptcy, but the mayor has an idea to save the town. It involves growing marijuana.
6: Here's the world's Jerry Haddon. Rasquera is tiny, about 3,000 residents, but its debt is huge, nearly $1.5 million. To pay it off, Mayor Bernat Paisa wants to rent some municipal lands to farmers,
12: pot farmers.
6: He says marijuana is like any of the crops you see around here, the cherries and olives and so on. It's something you can plant that brings you a profit, a relatively big profit compared to other crops, he admits, in this case, the money would be used to pay back funds borrowed for infrastructure projects dating back a decade. Nothing fancy, Paísa says. Things like better roads and streetlights. He says those projects have allowed people here to live with a little bit of dignity. We didn't even have internet until two years ago, he says. But using pot to counter the economic crisis is controversial, even in Catalonia, where growing pot for personal use is legal. Meet Rasqueda's prospective pot growers. They work out of a small storefront office in Barcelona, about two hours away. This is actually an association of cannabis consumers with some 5,000 members who pay monthly dues. The association grows and dispenses marijuana to them. Again, all perfectly legal in Catalonia. The association's Moishlov Georgievich says the group needed more land for planting, so it approached several towns. He says Raskera was ideal.
2: First, because it's uh, a countryside. And uh, the second thing is because the climate of Raskera is also very good for growing
6: and stuff. So for us, probably was nothing new. What is new is that the association's partner in pot growing would be a local government, elected officials, this has attracted some negative attention from Spain's national authorities, because while Catalonia's regional law permits personal pot growing, it conflicts with a national law against producing illegal drugs. It's like the standoff between California with its medicinal marijuana law and the Fed to keep raiding state-sanctioned facilities. In fact, police in Barcelona recently raided the Cannabis Association, arresting key members and accusing them of drug trafficking. A judge has dismissed the charges, but Georgevich says the message was clear. Lots
2: of people, they are, they are saying that it is not a coincidence that the police just wanted to come in, to like show us as like bad persons, let's say just to how can I say the dirt our image. dirt our, our image? yeah.
6: In order, he says, to sabotage, a planned referendum back in Rasquera. The idea of pot as a road to prosperity has already split the town in two. On one end stands a bar. The bartender here proudly wears a t shirt with a big green pot leaf on it. Folks parked on bar stools say they can't wait for Operation Cannabis to begin. <laughs> I'm in favor of it, says a young man named Gaetano Paisa. I have been a pot smoker myself. There are a lot of drugs that are a lot worse than pot, but no one wants to talk about that. On the other end of town, another bar. The crowd here is decidedly older, more conservative. A bunch of retired guys sit around playing dominoes. I think there are other ways to get out of this crisis, says owner Juan Martí. Pot is still an illegal substance. There's a danger that when the crop is harvested, it will be sold illegally. Let them plant something else, sunflowers, to harvest sunflower seeds. People in Bar 1 barely talk to people in Bar 2 these days. Mayor Paisa says the tension in town has gotten so bad, he's decided to hold a referendum. There's a lot of fear, he says, and pressure. You can feel it. When you walk past a neighbor on the street, you can just feel it. Paisa says if residents reject his homegrown rescue plan on April 10th, he'll resign. The risk is worth it, he says, because he's seen what more drastic budget cuts have led to in Barcelona. Last month, during a general strike against austerity measures, protesters set fires and broke store windows all over the city as police fired tear gas to disperse crowds.
7: El 75%. El no, no podemos,
6: eh, but Paisa yeah, says he needs uh, at least 75% of the people to say yes to marijuana. He says it would be absurd it's, it's, to move forward with the plan if half the town is against it. If the POT initiative does get the votes, this could be just the beginning. The Cannabis Association says at least four indebted towns near Rasquera are tempted by the idea, too. They're just waiting to see how things play out here before sticking their necks out. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Rasquera, Spain.
0: This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There's an app for just about everything. You probably have a few if you've got a smart device. But chances are you don't yet have the new Whale Alert app. Whale Alert has been developed to prevent ships from colliding with endangered right whales. David Wiley is a research coordinator with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So, David, uh, the right whale is one of the biggest whale species. So I'm getting as big as uh, nearly 100 tons. Is that right?
9: Well, in, in our area, along the eastern seaboard of the U.S., probably 50 tons is, is more likely their size, but but they can get quite large, and they are one of the great whales, one of the, you know, the, the group that is made of the biggest whales on the planet.
0: Right, so how often do right whales and ships collide? Uh, enough, I guess, to develop an app to keep it from happening.
9: Uh, per capita, right whales are more likely to be struck by ships than, than any other species. As a, a frequency, it's maybe once or twice a year along the eastern seaboard of the United States and Canada. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but because there's only 350 to 550 animals left in the world, you know, the loss of even one to the population is significant. So we're trying to, to turn that trajectory around and uh, increase the survival rate and expectations for right whales.
0: So how can you get a smart device app to know precisely where right whales are swimming and in real time? I mean, how does this thing work?
9: We have a system of, of real time acoustic detection buoys that are going through the traffic lanes that bisect the sanctuary and on either side. And these are listening devices that have a hydrophone dangling down from the buoys that can detect a particular call from a right whale called the up call. And that kind of sounds like woo. And that's a contact call. That's sounds that right whales make when they're trying to get together. So those buoys will pick up that call, send it uh, up to a satellite. That says there's detection. That detection is then confirmed by the bioacoustics research program at Cornell University. And then it's sent out by our AAS system uh, to vessels to warn them that there is a whale in the traffic lanes ahead of them.
0: Wow. Will marine professionals like ship captains be opening up their smartphones on the bridge to use this app?
9: Well, that's certainly what we're hoping. Um, You know, we've now created a device that makes it very easy for mariners to let them know of all the different things that are required of them to promote right well conservation and keep mariners from being fined unnecessarily for violating regulations. So they have the option now of, of getting all that stuff in one place and one time on digital charts, which has never occurred before. So, you know, one of the things that we're hoping is that through programs like the world, um, the maritime community will be aware of its existence and start using it.
0: Okay, now to the answer to our geo quiz today. You mentioned it earlier, David, but maybe you could just briefly trace for us uh, the right whale migratory route, which is fairly long, and uh, the seasonal feeding grounds for right whales.
9: Sure. Right whales are, they're in the wintertime off the coast of North Florida, um, where it's where they give birth to their calves. They'll then, starting in March, start moving north by April. They're in Cape Cod Bay and the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which is an important feeding ground. And then they'll move up to Nova Scotia and the Bay of Fundy uh, for the late summer-fall, which is another feeding area. And they start reversing that process in October and November.
0: Like real winter vacationers. Exactly. So Stellwagen Bank in Cape Cod Bay is the answer to our geoquist today. David Wiley at the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Thanks for speaking with us.
9: Thanks for having me, Marco.
0: We close today's program with a musical ensemble from the indigenous Mixtec region of Oaxaca in Mexico. They're called Pasatono Orquesta. Beto Arcos has a story.
2: Pasatono Orquesta is led by a couple who do double duty as ethnomusicologists and performers. They research and document the traditional music of Oaxaca, and sometimes they record and perform it, Rubén Luengas plays a ten-string instrument called de bajo quinto. Patricia García plays violin. Here's a paso doble from their latest recording called La Tiricia: Music and Stories to Cure Sadness. A few years ago, while doing research in the Mixtec region, Luengas and Garcia discovered groups that play their own version of early American swing music on the banjo. Mixtec migrant workers brought the instrument to the region in the 1920s. ¶¶ Luenga says that their most exciting find was the enduring popularity of the music known as Ya Si. Es el género indígena de la, de, propio de la música tradicional. Luenga says this indigenous music, an amalgam of traditional and modern styles, is known in the mixtic language as joyful music. Music alegre. Mixtec are one of the largest indigenous groups in the state of Oaxaca, and Yasi is the most popular indigenous music in the Mixtec region. Luengas and Garcia found that the music is played by solo musicians, small groups, and orchestras. Patricia Garcia says the Mixtec language plays an important role in understanding the Yasi musical style and its meaning in everyday life.
4: Solo les llaman
8: Yasi y y lo, lo ubican así the only ones who call this music and identify it as Yasi are the Mixtec speakers. The speakers of the Mixtec language have the knowledge of this music, not the Mixtec people in general.
2: La mejor música alegre es la que hace llorar. Luenga says, Mixtec people believe that the best joyful music is the one that makes you cry. Hay una tristeza, una melancolía implícita en esta música. He says there's a sadness, an implicit melancholy in this music but it must be enjoyed and danced when there's a birth or an offering when there's a wake or a party it's music that's present in everyday life and it's very mixtic More than 10 years ago, when they started doing research in the Mixtec region, Luengas and García were concerned that the traditional music was in danger of dying off. Today, they have a different opinion. Luengas says they now believe it would be very hard for this strong musical culture to disappear. Pasatono Orquesta is now part of this music scene, and they're also part of the preservation and continuity of the music of the Mixtec region of Oaxaca. For The World, I'm Beto Arcos.
0: You can watch a video of Basatono Orquesta in concert and in the studio. Just go to theworld.org. And that's all for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. The Freeman Foundation. And the PRI Program Fund, including the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Macfound.org PRI Public Radio International